I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and aspiring author who enjoys thought-provoking and engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business. In the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, the riots that took place all across the country this summer, there's been increased attention to the challenges that Black entrepreneurs face with regards to access to capital. With less than 1% of venture capital going to Black founders and Black small businesses unable to access traditional bank loans without a proven track record of success, as Black entrepreneurs, we face significant challenges with regards to raising capital for ourselves and our communities. To discuss this issue with me, I invited on the show Elizabeth L. Carter, a social enterprise and community capital securities attorney with significant experience in business law, nonprofit law, urban planning, community development, and government relations and policy. Through her firm, Elizabeth L. Carter Esquire LLC, she assists small businesses, cooperatives, and nonprofits with the legal compliance of raising capital from both accredited and non-accredited investors. Together, we discuss the systemic inequalities in fundraising, the current challenges faced by entrepreneurs of color, and cooperative economics. As a black entrepreneur and leader of a small business incubator in Newark, New Jersey, this conversation is near and dear to my heart, and I enjoyed having it with her. As always, I appreciate you for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoy today's show. And we are live. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. Today, I'm sitting down with another very special guest, Miss Elizabeth L. Carter. What's going on, Elizabeth? Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm, d- I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm a little tired, but I'm doing wonderful. I'm happy, I'm healthy, and I'm sound. Elizabeth, I'm super excited to have you on this show because, you know, one of the things we talk about is race, culture, and business. And with you being a subject matter expert on fundraising, I feel like our audience is going to get a lot of, of value out of it because, you know, my background is in American studies. I write more so about, you know, topics on race and culture and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, gender kind of stuff. But I've made, I have some assumptions about capital raising for black founders. And so it's going to be nice to actually have you on here to kind of push back or let me know if I'm in the right direction. Okay, cool. Let's do it. Do me a favor first. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. My name is Elizabeth um, L. Carter. I am a social or community capital securities attorney where I represent underrepresented founders, um, small businesses, nonprofits, and cooperatives with the legal compliance and strategy of raising business capital from both accredited and non-accredited investors. Um, Prior to that, I was actually, and I still am, uh, I I was generalized myself as a community development lawyer or community lawyer, uh, where, but my prior practice was much broader than what my current practice is. My current practice, namely, as you mentioned, um, just focused specifically on raising capital and legal compliance. So securities laws and business laws around that. Whereas prior to, I definitely engaged in redevelopment law real estate law, um, more other general or other business practice law, as well as represented a couple of government agencies and property tax liens and different municipal issues. So 
So here I am, though, focusing now on small businesses, nonprofits and co-ops, particularly those that are owned and controlled by black and Latinx. Man, I feel like I can get you on another episode just to talk about co-ops alone. We're going to we're going to touch on it uh, on this episode. But that's super dope. You're an SME. It's safe to say. Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> so one thing about both of us, we both went to Rutgers grad school. You went to the law school and I went to the uh, Graduate School of American Studies. So you just said you just left Newark, correct? Yeah, so I, I did a dual degree in law and urban planning. So I was at both the New Brunswick campus and the Newark campus. So I got the best of both worlds. That's amazing. And um, Newark, Newark, uh, sorry, not Newark, the Rutgers Law School in Newark, man, has a strong reputa reputation, um, especially being right here in, in the in the heart of the city. So um, we got a lot of mutual connects, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I definitely enjoyed my time in Newark and Rutgers, and I did a lot of community work in Newark. Um, I started a nonprofit called the Urban Cooperative Enterprise Legal Center while I was there um, and definitely got a chance to really build and connect with a, a number of strong and dedicated community organizers, educators, and just all around just Newark folks, right? And so I, I definitely appreciate Newark welcoming me for those eight, eight nine years I was there. Uh, but I just recently relocated to Chicago, which is where I was born, where my family uh, resides. And so I'm happy to be home as well. Yep, Chi-town. <laughs> all right, Elizabeth. One thing we do on this show is uh, give a confession. And uh, it's a great way to just be vulnerable with our audience. And uh, I'll go ahead and go first. And so for our listeners out there, I'll tell you, you know, I am a, I run a nonprofit here in town, consider myself a social entrepreneur, had opportunity to pitch for a 20K in prize money this week through an organization called uh, Echo and Green. And I didn't win, right? And I still walk away with like $9,000 in unrestricted funding for my nonprofit. But it's to the point now where, I don't know, I just don't like pitching anymore. And I realize that it might be a little bit of ego. You know, because just being transparent with you all, it's been a very challenging year for social entrepreneurs, small business owners, nonprofits in general um, with COVID-19 and the racial unrest and economic hardships. And so I don't know if I'm just like very fragile now, like taking, L, taking L's, but I realize, man, it's more so to do with my, my ego. I think I've done I've done a lot in terms of building brand awareness about Ironbound. And I've gotten to a certain level thus far, you know, pitching the way I pitch and telling the Ironbound story, but it's not actually helping me get to the next level. And so I need to go back to the drawing boards and understand, hey, you know, as great as as great as the work we've already done, we still got a lot of progress to make, particularly around pitching and metrics. And I need to communicate that more when I tell the Ironbound story. So, you know, just my confession is that I got a little ego in my way and I got to overcome it so I can move this organization forward. Good, good introspective. What about you? What do you got going on personally or professionally that you like to share with our audience? Uh, well, I didn't go to, I haven't been asleep. So I'm extremely exhausted right now. And I will say that when I started my firm back in 2017, that was a common thing for me. Um, you know, I had my moments where I actually, I figured it out and got rest, but when my mind is very anxious, I have a lot of great ideas or it's just, I have a trouble resting it. So I'm still, that's still a struggle for me to try to have that balance of personal and, and, and business because my, my life is so wrapped around what I do. You know what I mean? So that is a confession that I have not been asleep, but I am 
I think I have maybe a couple hours in me. So I'm glad you caught me now and not at six. <laughs> so we should be good. That's so hard, the whole quiet in your mind thing, because I'm right there with you. It's like it's so hard for me to sleep. And when that happens, it ruins in, it ruins my workouts and everything else. But it's just mm-hmm. like having all these mm-hmm. ideas and different directions you can go. Yeah, it, does, it ruins everything. I mean, sleep is so important. And it's crazy because, you know, there's, you know, has been a trend, you know, team no sleep or sleep is the cousin of death. And you, you hear that and it's like, that's ridiculous. Like we need sleep for health. I mean, it prevents diseases, prevents illnesses. It, 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 I mean, for me, when I get a good rest, oh, that's where my ideas really start to come in. You know what I mean? So I definitely beat myself up when I don't because it's like, what is the point of this? I can't operate this way. But, you know, I mean, I, I do fine. But I know optimally I need I need at least eight to 10 hours of sleep. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with our listeners today and uh, even super excited for you even being willing to do this interview. And uh, we're going to um, we're going to keep pushing along before we jump into the theme of this show, though. I got to go ahead and give a shout out to our sponsors. First, I got to give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Next, we got to give a shout out to my brand, the one and only Ironbound Boxing, a nonprofit organization that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities to inner city youth and young adults in Newark, New Jersey. Bam. Shout out to two badass brands, y'all. Both started by African-American Marine officers. We're doing it for the culture. We're showing you what's possible with entrepreneurship. Be sure to go to dopecoffee.com and ironboundboxing.org and show us some love. All right, Elizabeth. I'm super excited, man. Today's the day. The theme of today's show is raising capital for the black entrepreneur. One of the things I want to pick your brain on, you know, there's been this whole uptake in conversations about a black culture uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd, you know, we're in the George Floyd era. And I believe there are systematic, systemic inequalities in fundraising, particularly around what it takes to be an accredited investor and whatnot. I'm curious to pick your brain and ask you, you know, what are some of the systemic inequalities you've come across in fundraising, given your vast experience? Um, I mean, you said it, um, you know, not only just the definition of accredited investor, uh, but systematic racism permeates every system um, in this country, particularly systems of funding. So we think about, you know, the marginalization of, of black community, of the black community, particularly black businesses from traditional bank financing, um, VC funding, right? Uh, so like I said, the historical and current marginalization uh, of black businesses from not only traditional banks, but also from traditional philanthropy and government funding all, all of it is due to systematic racism. You know, um, there's a statistic showing that Black women right now are the fastest growing rate of entrepreneurs and get the least likely to be funded. So despite their talent, despite, you know, their, their you know, the success in their businesses, they're not being supported by the traditional sort of funding streams or funding mechanisms, namely venture capital, you know, banks and uh, philanthropy. It's interesting to me how people can think systemic inequality doesn't exist, right? It's particularly against black people. But when you Mm -hmm. look at, and I've said this on previous episode, the requirements to be an accredited investor, you know, last time I checked, that's like the top 1% of black America. Is it three, is 300K in household income and a million in liquid assets? Am I, am I, am I mistaken there? Well, it's a million in, 
and net worth excluding your your primary home. So you should have investments up to one million in addition to two hundred thousand dollars per year in income for an individual, yeah. um, one person. So yeah, I mean it excludes most people, right? I mean in the United States, it really is for the top top uh, percent, right? Um, but that's yeah. So right, it, it's very exclusionary, and it still is has been for a long time. What are the risks of investing and not being an accredited investor? Because when I think a lot of immigrant groups that come to this country, you know, my assumption is that they don't have a lot of, you know, that much capital, but they do invest in each other to help launch these small businesses. So, you know, prior to the Jobs Act, which is, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you talk on that. But what is the, how have people been investing beforehand? Uh, before the Jobs Act? Yes. Well, like you said, before before the Jobs Act, um, a non-accredited investor, so someone who makes under $200,000 per year and, and under $1 million in net worth, was not able to invest in a business, particularly um, those that um, you know were public, uh, publicly, well, I should say that, private investment, right? So they weren't allowed to do, so even if you wanted to invest a dollar as a non-accredited, well, even if a small business wanted to raise a dollar, they were unable to raise a dollar first and foremost without registering, registering with the SEC, which costs hundreds of thousand dollars per year plus, you know, well per year because of compliance fees and registration fees and legal and accounting. And then even if okay, so maybe they don't want to, you know, uh, ask one dollar from the accredited investor. They want to go and ask the non-accredited. They weren't technically allowed to do that unless it was, you know, there was some pre-existing relationship. Uh, maybe it was some management involved with the person that's giving money. So in other words, it couldn't be defined as a security. But anytime that something is defined as security, um, unless there's an exemption like the Jobs Act provided, then the the small business owner will have to get their offer, and even even if it's just one dollar, registered with the SEC. And again, that that was just not costly for the average small business owner. Do we get caught up in the securities and stuff? Because you know, I'm hearing you talk. I know my family, when they were launching businesses, they were not accredited, you know, and I know a lot of others weren't accredited. So it seems like, I mean, have people been doing it illegally is what it seems like? Is it technically the way these underfunded communities have been investing in other businesses? Is it within compliance or no? Um, Well, family is different. Uh, Like I said, having pre-existing relationships, but also it, so there's two things that goes on. It's, how you're reaching out to investors. Is it generally advertised? Is it public or is it private? And then the other is, okay, how do you define these investors? Are they sophisticated? Are they accredited? Um, And so when you think about private investments, even now, even today, you know, you have, they have to be either accredited or sophisticated or, and and you cannot generally advertise. So you need a pre-existing relationship with them, some prior relationship. It could be a business relationship. It could be a personal relationship. Um, but yes, technically, I guess you could say, um, yeah, but I, but there's, there's, there's a difference when it comes to family. It's sort of like when you sell your property, you know, in the family through quick claim deed, right? I mean, there's a, it's just a different sort of transaction than it is with a friend, neighbor, or even a distant sort of someone a little more distant, right? Um, so, but you're correct in that the black community has always had to you know, come together and share resources. Um, in fact, when, you know, there's, I don't know if you know the story of Marcus Garvey, but technically, so that's a good question that you asked because we give a good example here. You know, Marcus Garvey was raising funds to fund a trip 
or a trip, a voyage of Black Americans back to Africa. So he was funding the boats and the ships and he was asking for capital, asking for support. And and what what ended up happening is that he was uh, in, um, charged with mail fraud. But that was before the Securities Act of 1932 was actually passed, right? This was in the 20s. So really it was securities fraud though, right? So if it was a couple of years later, that's what he would have been charged with. And obviously that was uh, some racism behind the, 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 per, or the charge, but just to show you what to kind of answer your question that technically yes right depending on who you're asking and how you're going about it yeah because you know you keep hearing this we already know the friends that flying me around how important it is to kind of help get a venture launch but some of our people a lot of our people unfortunately you know the black a lot of black people don't have savings to invest in ventures like that so mm-hmm. it makes sense for people to go outside of their community and what does that look like and when i think about things like you know, accredited investors and all the restrictions that are put upon it. It just seems like, you know, once again, we were excluded from participating in that space. Oh, yes, for sure. For sure. So my my, my next question to you is, um, as you've kind of seen the landscape, right? And I know you mentioned it before uh, with like cooperative economics, but I believe that there's a black economy. And I believe that a lot of the businesses that have succeeded Um, A lot of the startups that have overcome, right? I think they're executing different strategies from the masses. Like people might not even know it. Um, And I'm just curious to see what have you seen work well for founders, particularly black founders, as they attempt to raise capital? Well, that's a broad question because there's all kinds of ways to raise capital. Um, I I think it would be good to talk about the Jobs Act and the rise of crowdfunding. Yeah, that's um, great. You're right. Because so, uh, Mike Lloyd, uh-huh. Mike Lloyd, one of the sponsors, my executive producer of the show, he runs Dope Coffee Company out of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And they just got done with their crowdfund campaign. They raised over like 110K. Nice. So I, oh, nice. I regret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead and tell us about the Jobs Act because I forgot to even ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. So and I, yeah. So the Jobs Act in 2012 was introduced by Congress and signed by Obama. Uh, with the intent of facilitating small business capital formation. Um, it essentially helped democratize investment opportunities by allowing non-accredited investors, right? So we talk about accredited, but what this act did was allow non-accredited investors to partake in the investment space and investment world legally, right? So we talk about, we just got done talking about what it was before. Um, and it also opened up more viable sources of business capital for small businesses, right? So, so in addition to traditional banks, in addition to venture capital, in addition to philanthropy or government uh, grants, now you now small businesses can go and actually raise capital from the crowd or from the public. Whereas before, as I mentioned, they would have to have registered, spend you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars per year, or you know have, know some wealthy um, you know wealthy rich people privately to do so. And that just wasn't the case for many small businesses. And so, as you can imagine, you know, as a black black founder or black business owner where, you know, you're, you know, you're already systematically excluded from venture capital, you know, that, you know, venture capital have only about 1% of venture capital funding has, has to date gone to black founders, right? Um, historically and currently, again, banks, you know, just marginalized black businesses. I mean, even now, I think there's still lawsuits going on currently about, you know, well-known banks, you know, engaging in these um, discriminatory acts. And then again, you know, philanthropy and government, most of the sources go to white-led organizations. And so now you have this crowdfunding, which seems to be more democratizing because it allows that small business owner, black owner, 
to, like you said, reach out to family, friends, neighbors, um, the, the just the general public, especially through internet, because it's generally, it allows you to generally advertise without registering again, going back to that. Uh, but I will say it's not without its flaws though, right? So this is especially true when it comes to businesses owned by marginalized groups, such as black businesses or black founders. It costs money to make money. And oftentimes the cost of raising additional capital, including crowdfunding capital, ostracizes the already ostracized groups by leaving them where they started. And, you know, so essentially, you know, although it's the, the Jobs Act has been more democratizing in a sense, again, allowing non-credit investors to get involved, allowing small businesses to generally advertise without registering, but but not all Black businesses will be able to to even partake in that. And the reason being is going back to systematic, you know, these traditional sources, right? Banks redlining and 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 discriminating against um, discriminating against um, you know Black Black communities and the VCs and the philanthropy. And so what happens is over time, you know, the Black community is just as a whole do not have enough net worth or capital to even pay the cost to engage in what's supposed to be a more democratizing uh, capital raising method like crowdfunding. So I'll give an example. Uh, the average cost, so crowdfunding is a number of crowdfunding tools. There's one, it's broadly defined, right? So we have regulation crowdfunding, which is through a portal and, and the small business will put their business on there. And then investors will both accredited and non-accredited will see their business on this website, this portal, and say, hey, I'm going to click here. I want to uh, help them. And then you could probably invest as little as $500 there as equity or debt. Um, and they can raise, the small business owner can raise up to $1 million through that way, right? $1.07 million. Um, then there's uh, Rule 504 or Reg D, or uh, I'm sorry, a direct public offering which is up to $5 million. And again, generally advertised. Um, don't, you don't have to necessarily go through a portal. And then there's the Reg A, which is up to $50 million. So we'll talk about Reg A. And again, these are the reason why they are crowdfunding. They're, allowed, they're allowing non-accredited investors to get involved. And they are allowing generally advertising, public advertising, um, or marketing methods, right? So online, you know, it's not these, these real restrictions regarding that. Um, but essentially to do a reg A up to 50 million, the legal cost alone on average is between 50 to $80,000 just, just for that one offer. Right. Um, so then you're, you're asking the small business owner to come up with that. And that's not even including any county fees that they may have, will have to incur during the process or any marketing fees. And so they could easily spend up to a hundred thousand dollars alone just to raise 50 million, um, probably even more. And so a lot of these are upfront costs. Um, and that's not in addition to their regular startup business costs, LOC formation, operating agreement drafting, et cetera, et cetera. So you have all these real costs that just a lot of black founders, you know, or even other marginalized groups just won't be able to participate unless they have the professional support that recognize and acknowledge that. Um, and so that's the reality. So I say all that to say that yes, jobs act did more right, for the small business owner, including Black business owners, but it doesn't eradicate the long and historical, you know, um, I guess, accounts of systematic racism that still has effects today. One thing I appreciate about listening to you talk is I love how you tie the historical aspect in, like you mentioned in Marcus Garvey, uh, you know, and I just think it just shows just how, you know, your dopeness as a lawyer and how you're kind of oh, looking at these, these situations. And you said something that I don't think people really understand is when you raise capital, 
a lot of times you can even dilute your brand so much that you start back at zero. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, when you raise capital, it definitely costs, right? And so people will say, well, I want to raise the money. What do you mean I got to come up with, you know, $50,000? I need to raise it, right? And you're like, well, you have it, you have to pay people to help you comply. You have to pay people to help you get it out, get the word out. You have to help people, you don't have to pay people that will get your financial statements together. I mean, this is just the reality of a business. And so, so yeah, it's, just, it's all of that. It's just, it's, it's it costs, definitely. And, and so then- you know, you have to say, well, how can we make it even more democratizing for black and brown businesses? Another thing you mentioned, too, was banking. And I know when a lot of people are starting their businesses, especially first timers, you know, there's assumption, oh, we're going to go to the bank and get some capital. But a lot of banks aren't giving out capital like that because people don't even have a track record of business yet. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, yeah, it's just it's a lot of different restrictions with banks and particularly, it, you know, still to this day, there's um, records showing that banks still engage in some systematic racing where there's a difference, right? If you're a black business owner, they're high, the restrictions are higher or more burdensome versus a white business owner. And and just and even in just general, I think banks just have, uh, they're high, highly more regulated and they have, um, you know, their own particular standards that, you know, that just doesn't fit the small business model or the startup model. So for given all these systematic systemic issues that black founders face with regards to getting access to this capital, and even though there's the Jobs Act and it's still limited, what mm-hmm. are some solutions you have seen that have worked good at scale? So what I mean by that is like, what are common themes you've seen from the founders that have been able to overcome these issues and go on to raise successful capital? I think it's, um, I think to help solve these issues is, you know, really educating yourself on the various options of capital raising, um, knowing what you're actually getting yourself into when you choose these various options and seeking the proper professional support. You know, those that, um, when I'm professional support, so first is hiring an attorney that has a cultural competency rep- and, and as more representative of you and your business and have a good grasp on the political economy as it relates to systematic racism, because there will be a different understanding of your needs and different strategies, strategic thinking that goes into that in terms of how to get around those challenges. Um, And then lastly, I think those who think on a collective level versus the individual level will uh, better succeed, particularly black businesses. Let's go deep on that. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's what kind of I was leaning at. Talk to us about what you mean, the collective level. Yeah, sure. So take this, you know, this pandemic now, COVID, um, you know, black businesses, you know, a huge percentage of us, uh, our businesses are just not going to be here anymore. Right. Um, and and obviously it, it impacted so many, everyone, but particularly it hit hard for the black community. And so what I've seen was that, you know, And as an entrepreneur, I think that the tradition of entrepreneurship has an individualistic approach to it, a founder, right? Even the word founder imagines one person. Um, So, but those who understand that it takes an entire team, those who understand it takes an equal team. So not just one person calling all the shots, but a team of equal uh, decision makers and makers in the group to be able to move forward on, on a similar goal. So I'm thinking, you know, for instance, like I said, Two similarly situated small businesses who are who are struggling right now, um, instead of just closing their doors or just working, working, climbing an uphill battle, they should merge together 
right? Um, share these costs, share resources, um, you know, really, really uh, leverage their capital, leverage their resources and use that as a way to, again, leverage additional capital that they could raise. Because I'm imagining two small businesses coming to me saying, you know, forming a cooperative where, you know, they default the owners, but also the, those who they have not, may have employed become co-owners, right? So now you you, you lower your costs and a lot of different things with that. Um, you also add more capital because people are now investing, your employees are now invested in your company. And then what you do, you're able to now afford that attorney, right? That's a, that can help you raise that million dollars, right? That can help better sustain your business over time. You know, maybe you need, um, you know, different mechanisms to help make your operations more efficient. Maybe you need different supplies. Uh, maybe you want to go more virtual. I don't know, right? But that's what that a million dollars will help you do. But now you're able to do that because you're partnering with people. You're on, a, on an equal basis. It's no longer just you struggling doing everything yourself. Um, so that's what I mean by people who think on a collective, you know, an equal team mindset versus an individualistic mindset will succeed better, not only in these pandemic times, but just in general. Where was that spirit cultivated in you at? Because you, I love him again. You're talking, you're talking my talk, collectives and co-ops. <laughs> but you know, this is not something you hear a lot. I feel like in this space we're talking about, in this, you know, capital raising and venture and and all that. Oh no, you don't, because capitalism spur individualism and spur uh, a situation where only one person. You mentioned earlier you know, the frustration you have with pitches and pitches. I mean, part of it, even like when you fly to colleges, hey, you know, I used to get, I'm sure you was, you was getting too, a bunch of like invites, oh, apply here, apply here. And then in reality, you know, unless you were like top 1% of your class, they, some of them knew they weren't going to admit you, but they need their numbers of how many people apply versus how many got accepted. Look how selective we are, right? It's all a game. And so same kind of scenario, right? It's like, you're also you one, you're giving them popularity, right? You're getting them legitimacy. Um, and then at the same time, they already probably had in their mind who or what and how much they were gonna give out. Meanwhile, the founder is frustrated and, and really needs the money to provide a good service to their community. And so so um it, it's just a get it's just the way people are taught. But I think for me, it's two ways, two reasons why I think this way. I, if I can boil it down to two reasons, will be one. Um, just my understanding of the political economy and, and race in this country. I studied political science and African-American studies and the minor in philosophy, but then also just practically. When I talk about co-ops now with the, in a financial space, it just makes sense, right? It makes like, sense. Like, why would you, yeah, like, why would you struggle by yourself when you literally can partner with someone and can make your whole life easier? And I get it. I'm not saying it's, it's just going to be like a happy marriage, but that's where the tradition and culture of of, uh, you know, the consensus decision-making comes in. This is where the trainings come in, really having someone support you in that process so that you can be successful in coming together. Because again, we're from day one, it's not set up or designed. It's a system design, you know, the schooling or whatever is not designed for us to partner together in that way. Um, and so, so yeah, I'll say you just have to be intentional about it and have to be, you have to understand that the, the, the benefits outweigh the cost. So, I'm what I'm, a, I'm 33 years old now. Right. And I will say I just started reading about cooperatives probably in the last like year and a half. And I think it is part of my entrepreneurial journey. Like you said, I have a mantra of lifting as we climb and it just makes sense. But we might be getting ahead of ourselves because of a lot of our listeners. They're hearing these terms, but they might not even know what a cooperative is. 
So do you mind oh, okay. taking a moment and just kind of refreshing our memory on what a co-op is? My <laughs> my reference point is a new age co-op in the wire. Oh, actually, that was interesting that you say that when I saw it, because I didn't watch it. I was too young back then. But when I saw it, like on the re or the um, on Netflix or whatever. Yeah, it was cool to hear them say that because technically they were engaging a co-op, even though it was illicit. Right. Right. <laughs> but it was. And the way they were the way they were talking about it, you know, when we all we all lose or when one person loses, we all lose. Right. And so. Um, and so, yeah, cooperative in a, in a basic definition is an inter- uh, enterprise for-profit or non-profit that is owned and controlled by those that use the services. Um, so when you think about, there's three types, producer cooperatives, worker cooperatives, I'm sorry, it's consumer cooperatives. And consumer cooperatives include housing cooperatives and food cooperatives. So in a housing cooperative sense, the, the landlord are the tenants, right? And so there's no actual third-party landlord the tenants own that building collectively through individual shares um, and they are allowed to live in that building because of their ownership of that building collectively, right? Same thing with the grocery store. The consumers typically own the food co-op. So collect and individually, they're allowed to shop there and, and, and receive benefits and patronage and, and lieu of. And then the worker co-op. So instead of you having some boss or, um, you know, some other, some, an employer, each individual worker owns that particular business collectively, right? So they each own a share in exchange for their labor. And so it, what I was attracted to, or why I was attracted to co-ops, was it just, it was a remarkable, it was such an affront to capitalism in that way. Don't get me wrong, a lot of the, I mean, you're still in it, capitalist society, so there's these questions of competition within it or staying alive within it. And so there's some problematic sort of, um, I guess operations oftentimes you find in these bigger co-ops, but but in a sense, in theory and in, in, in the structure, it is. It's saying, you know, we don't need the capitalist, right? We the labor is running the show. We don't need the landlord. The tenants are making sure their own place of residence is is up to par. And it won't increase their own the rent on themselves, right? Unless they have to, unless it makes sense for the cost, right? But otherwise there's no profit motive. And that's how housing should probably be controlled anyway. Um, so that's essentially what it is. So when you talk about in the business sense, you're, you'd be talking about um, the producer sense. So this is where uh, individual farmers or individual manufacturers or people who create products come together. And for the most part, uh, cre- uh, to, to, to create, with the share cost, but also to enforce labor stand or I'm sorry, um, industry standards in order to, you know, uh, really create an overall brand um, and making sure that whatever's in that industry and those who participate have control over that. Um, and then as far as worker co-op in the business, the example I gave before, you know, two small businesses, it could be a restaurant um, and structured as a worker co-op where the, lay, the workers are actually part owners of that restaurant, right? And so they are receiving wages and profits. Sometimes a lot of listeners on here could be pretty conservative, just to be honest. You know, we got a lot of military veterans out there. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious if if for them, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but do people sometimes confuse cooperatives as leaning a little bit towards like socialism a bit? Or is that a far reach? I don't know. Um, let's give Cuba for an example, which is a is is a country that aspired to be socialist through communism and what they're doing now, they are foregoing a lot of their property that the state owned and, the, and putting it in the hands of co-ops. 
So maybe they do see that as like transitioning to socialism, which is which is where it's owned and controlled by the people, right? Um, so not the state, not the government, not private wealthy corporations that have no, you know, no allegiance to the community or neighborhood, but the actual people who are using, again, using these services are being most impacted by. So I guess you could say that. Um, but again, I, I, <laughs> I haven't studied socialism to the T to be, you know, to really intellectually answer that or effectively answer that question. But I know enough to say that I guess you could say that. Um, but I don't think it's a negative thing, right? Um, I think it's just, again, how you were, uh, how you were educated and thinking what was bad or good. But I think anyone as a human um, concept, a human rights concept would agree that having an institution or entity set up that favor those who are most impacted and benefited, right? You know what I mean? So making sure that labor is is being compensated and, and it's not enslaved, right? <laughs> making sure that people aren't being underpaid or overworked. This is what labor laws was created in the first place, right? So I think that's, you know, thinking of it, what the benefits is uh, versus just the structure. Well, the structure is important too, because it, it, that's how the benefits arise. But really looking at what the impact on the people, I think that's how you should really judge them. I think, especially in the midst of this COVID-19 and what the future lies for places like Newark and Chicago and Detroit, you know, the black owned businesses there. I definitely uh -huh. think we need the collective and the cooperative approach, you know, because I don't see yeah. how we're going to be able to come out of this without it. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. worried that these teachings, the stuff that we're talking about, you know, is not getting stressed, <laughs> you know, in this in this society, yeah. in this economy. Um, mm -hmm. And how do we. You know, how do we raise more awareness about it? How do we teach this stuff to people? Because, you know, incubation, I'm a veteran. I get free workspace. I'm talking to you right now from a free workspace. I'm sure there's mm -hmm. a lot of small business owners out there who wish they could have workspace. And instead of trying mm -hmm. to cover the cost themselves, you know, coming together to where we have this space we can all work out of. Yeah. Um, how do we get the word out? I mean, just on the ground, what you're doing now with this podcast, um, you know, organize traditional organizing, education, workshops, webinars. I think also what I've found, if you look at historically co-ops in the black community, um, black people do form co-ops out of necessity. Right. And the question is, how do we make them see as necessary? And I think that's that's the issue. Um they will, and, and people in general will come together when they need to, right? Particularly Black people. The culture of communal and collective is within the culture. It's just when there seems to be a number of opportunities that allow you to be individualistic, you will, it, because it's the United States of America, you do that. I mean, everything is like, is shaped to, to push you in that direction. Like we talk about VC and like found these definitions. But um, I think when people start to realize that VC is not working, Right. When people start to realize that the pandemic, you know, has created permanent ch challenges in the black community, black business community, when people start to realize, these, you know, even with voting. Right. With these, if not just realize, but actually not be in denial either, because I'm starting. I see that, too. I think people want something so bad. They create an alternative reality. But I think many of us will realize that it is necessary now. Um, and then I think we'll get to the point where we can pre-cops, not just out of necessity, because out of, but out of desire, not a will, because it's just the right thing to do. It just, it makes sense for us to share and support one another. But as a marginalized group, practically, it's just almost necessary for you to do so. Yeah. I'm just worried about this winners take all mentality that I see, yeah. you know, and it's like, you got to reprogram the brain as like a black American to say, Hey, 
if you play by those rules, your chances of success aren't very high. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, I see it. I see it. And I just, you know, I, honestly, I have faith. They're going to get the word out, create the content, connect with the people, and eventually they will start to realize the, the, the benefit for them. They're going to keep hitting their head against the wall for a while. And then eventually, unless that system, that, that wall they're hitting opens up, which is rare, um, they're going to turn to something that makes more sense, sensible people. Um, you know, like I said, I think when you said, you know, what are some what people, you know, successful founders or business owners have done, you know, educate themselves. I see that a lot of people run towards venture capital. And I don't have a thing against venture capital. Let's just be clear. I just think people don't know what they're really getting into when they're entering the venture capital space. And they don't realize that there's other ways to get small business funding outside of the private funding outside of the venture capital space, right? And you can, that includes angel investors, which are not venture capitalists. They're individual wealthy people. It could be groups and syndicates, but, and then you have the crowdfunding and also understanding that crowdfunding is, goes beyond just donations. I think I, when I hear, a lot of people hear crowdfunding, they think of GoFundMe, which is donations. Right. When I talk crowdfunding, I'm thinking about investment crowdfunding, actual, you know, stake where investors have equity or uh, some type of return um, for for their um, investment, for their dollar that they're giving to the business. But yeah, and I'll say as far as VC or venture capital, there's a growing movement of black venture capital space. And I'm hoping that they change the narrative when it comes to venture capital. I'm hoping that they change the metrics that better suit the black business um, in a way that understands and recognize that systematic racism is really the big po- culprit and not some deficiency with the founder, right? And and so you see, like you express that frustration, like what am I doing wrong? And not to say there's not room for improvement, but in all actuality and reality, when a white man, white male founder, all he needs to do is say, you know, have a, a, a quick pitch or, you know, maybe have a quick talk. He don't even need a business plan. He doesn't need to show if it's actually going to work. This tradition, I mean, this has what's been happening in VC space. And they give him, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? To fail. <laughs> like just now, Quibbly just been, you know, there's a news that they raised $1.1 billion and have failed. How do you raise $1.1 billion and don't be able to do anything with it? If a, like, you know what I mean? If a black <laughs> founder raised $1.65 billion and that business failed in six months, we'd probably be in prison. Exactly. For for not exactly for for uh security fraud. <laughs> like, they, they, you know, with it not protecting the investors. Like exactly. So so I say that to say, like, you know, really just educate yourself and knowing these various options, you know, everything is, is, is strategy, you know, not everything is for everyone, but definitely know what you're getting yourself into. VC is definitely great for startups, particularly in the tech industry, because they it's all about, you know, low capital intensive. How, you know, building or be able to grow at a quick, quick, quick pace and then being able to sell quickly. That's not, that doesn't apply um, easily to, you know, a lot of black owned businesses, which are, could be in the, in the beauty industry or, um, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, hair salons or even clothing or these type of things that a lot of, a lot of small, most small businesses are in. These other industries are not viable for tech funding or VC funding, right? Um, also, I think it's important to know there's a difference between a startup versus small business. The black founder or, or, yeah, black founder, for the most part, want to maintain control, want to maintain a legacy or create a legacy over time, a long-term legacy, because of the systems that we have been systematically 
ostracized for so long, we want to be able to have a stake and say, no, this is our community or this is my business for the community and, and, and have it passed down to the next generation. But if you're in the VC world, you have a huge risk of losing that control um, because each round you lose at least 20% or at most 20%. Um, and so by the, you can imagine by the time you get to the fourth, the third round, I mean, you could, I think I, I've heard VC say that you're lucky to even have 10% of your company at the end of your, your, your rounds, right? Um, and then also when you don't own majority of your, your company, you don't own the, the control of the operation. So you may or may not be the CEO anymore, right? You may or may not be in a position to make those important decisions. And so if that's, if that's, if you're looking to just make a lot of money really quickly and then question that lot of money, because if you look at the average VC funding to black businesses, I mean, it's significantly lower than the white men, right? White male uh, business owner or founder. So I, I just say all that to say, if you educate yourself, that $2 million that you could get from VC after several rounds and only, only about 10%, you can actually get with this investment crowdfunding um, in a year or two and you maintain 100% control. I appreciate you saying that. And that's why I feel like, you know, we're like Kendrick spirits on this because I don't have a law background. I don't you know, have a background in studying securities and all that kind of stuff. But just my experience as an entrepreneur over the last, you know, three years, you know, mm -hmm. doing this full time, I have come across the same information. I've come across the same understanding that you have this idea mm -hmm. of one. Let's be honest. Let's talk about bit small business in this country. I, mm -hmm. I said it on previous episodes, man, there were 30.6 million small businesses Prior to the pandemic, about half mm -hmm. of those were single member LLCs mm -hmm. of the 30.6, 2.5 million were listed as black or African-American. And we know mm -hmm. who gets thrown in the black category these days. So we really don't have a gauge on the number of black owned businesses in this country. We just know it's extremely <clears throat> no, low. And mm -hmm. we what we know for a fact is that black venture capital is like less than one percent. So mm -hmm. should we even be talking about venture capital, in my opinion? And the second thing is, going back to what you said, everybody loves to throw this term black-owned, black-owned, black-owned. But if you low own less than 5% of that company, is it really black-owned anymore? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, I feel like these are honest conversations we need to have. And these conversations need to come from people like us. Um, because I think so often we let other groups tell us what's best for our community and our culture instead of us yeah. coming around the table and saying, no, this is best for us. Yeah, I mean, also VC just has a lot of, and not to make this about, you know, attack on VC, but you're right. If it's one, less than 1% going to Black founders, why are so many Black businesses, small business startups going towards that route? I think it has a lot to do with the Silicon Valley, Google, uh, uh, Facebook sort of era of people. I mean, Facebook really disrupt the system in a way that obviously attracted a lot of people towards it whether funding or just obviously we're all on Facebook now consumers like and so people see like oh that's a lot of money over there they all are running towards it. it's almost like the gold rush right but you're right in that but for who right I mean right now the Bay Area is heavily gentrified crazy expensive for the average person crazy expensive for the black person that was living there maybe 20 30 years ago as a you know family was living there now they're, they're they're pushed out so the reality is like you said as a black business a small business i think you should just do your homework um definitely know what you're see what you're getting into if you see that number is one percent do you think again that concept of i'm going to be that one percent <laughs> i will be that great um and and not realizing it's, it's it's not really about your greatness at all um it's about who you know and access to networking 
Um, and even then, you know, just being able to somehow <clears throat> get in, the, in a room full of those who care enough. And now since the Black uprisings, you do, you'd have had not only VC, but just corporate America reaching out and saying, how can I make it? How can I do better? Whether it's lip service or not, the conversations being had in some. In some. Um, and so now you do see initiatives where I think um, PayPal actually paid, I want to say 20 million or maybe it was 50 million to a number of Black VC firms. And so that is the hope of maybe those Black VC firms then you know, trickle those dollars down to these black business owners in a different way or different metric system, hopefully, than we have seen uh, with the white VCs, because clearly that wasn't working for the community. Man, you're going to I got I feel like you're going to be a recurring guest on here because it's like I talk about a lot of this stuff, but to actually have someone who's well versed in it, who spends time in the space is very refreshing to be able to have this conversation with you. And a lot of the listeners on this platform, you know, they may or may not have that, that business background to understand um, the kind of stuff we're talking about, but they, they do want to raise capital and they do want to pursue mm -hmm. entrepreneurship. And so it's really helpful to have you on here and talk about this stuff for mm -hmm. a listener out there in, in closing um, that is interested in raising capital. Right. Whether it's a small business or venture capital. Again, what advice would you like to give them if they're a founder of color? Yeah, I, I think I would say there's a number of strategies to employ. There's a number of ways to educate yourself. So I will start with education. Just educate the industry or educate yourself about the industry. What is the venture capital versus angel investor versus crowdfunding? Um, how does it best suit your business? Right. Who are the, the, the who's and who that you should know or some of the you just really get to know the industry, understand what a, an accelerator is um, and in relation to all this. Right. Understand what a pitch competition Just really know where is that leading you, because typically that all leads to VC or angels. Right. Just know that where it's going. Who's the person giving you money? What will be some of their ass of you? Right. Some of their control or some of their just just really know what you're getting yourself into. And then also, I will say some strategies would be you know, that I would recommend is that, you know, don't sleep on cooperatives, form cooperatives. Um, and if you don't know what it is or how to go about it, find someone that can help you form it. Find an attorney, find a, and a consultant that understands the governance structures, the legal structures. Um, also, utilize investment crowdfunding. Right. Don't you know, there's it's so much more than just donations. And also, you know, there's rewards crowdfunding and use that. And, and also donation crowdfunding as a as a strategy to build a capital stack that saves you money and allows you to maintain full control until you're ready to raise investment crowdfunding or other investment capital. Right. Um, and then just creating a strong team of informed professionals and other support. You know, like I said, finding an attorney that is, you know, that is representative, that is culturally sensitive to you and that understand the political economy that you are partaking in, namely the systematic racism, systematic, you know, sexism and genderism issues that because the importance of knowing about these systems, the person will be able to help you navigate these systems, help you come up with unique strategies to getting around and being successful um, because you know what you're working with, you know, you're aware. Um, it's about legacy. You know, it's about restoring hundreds of years of systematic harm. And I believe that is our responsibility as Black founders, Black businesses, Black nonprofits, our responsibility as a Black community, right? We have a responsibility to one another. Um, and I think lastly, I, I did want to say this. Some of the misconceptions is that nonprofits can't raise capital. 
or engage the enterprise. I want to emphasize loudly and proudly that they can. Um, and I know we can talk about that later, but a lot of people don't understand that nonprofit. I mean, because a lot of our nonprofits that are owned and controlled by people of color struggle. And they struggle to get try to get grants and philanthropy. And again, it's, they operate in the same systematic <laughs> racist system as, as the VCs and, and, and the other funding sources. So know that you can be independent through enterprise as a nonprofit, as well as through raising capital. And it would be debt equity or I'm sorry, debt investment, but it will be investment nonetheless. I appreciate you saying that because I forgot to bring up the nonprofit side of the house as I'm sitting here as a director of a nonprofit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But that's a whole separate topic. But I, I appreciate you for spending the day with us. Um, you dropped so much knowledge and so many gems. Where can people find you at? Oh, sure. And thank you for having me. And thank you, you know, for the kind words. And this was fun. And I love doing this. Uh, like you said, what is the biggest thing is just education and awareness. So I'm happy to do it again. No problem at all. Um, you can find me at on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter with the hash. Is it a hashtag? No, with the at sign at E-L-C-E-S-Q-L-L-C. And you can also find me on LinkedIn, um, www.linkedin.com slash company slash E-L-C-E-S-Q. I can also be reached by email, E-C at E-L-C-E-S-Q.com. And the website is www.E-L-C-E-S-Q.com. I'll be sure to pass that information around to, pe to people on this show and those in my network that are looking to raise because uh, I feel like you have a, a lot of information and uh, it's going to be great to continue to spread you around our network, too, because I think that's a it goes back to the collective mindset you had. Like, I'm a veteran. You're not a veteran, but you were in Newark Law School. Um, you know, I'm here in graduate school and just connecting mm -hmm. us and just, you know, we the human capital piece is important and we got to share it amongst our people. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. I totally agree. Well, for our listeners out there, do us a favor. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, forward this show to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter. You can order some dope coffee at www.realdopecoffee.com. We got to start supporting our own businesses, y'all. Mike and the team at Dope just dropped a hip-hop album called Spinach. Head over to the Dope Coffee website and purchase your, your exclusive Spinach merch pack. Also, be sure to donate at ironboundboxing.org, where we build champions in and out of the ring. Every donation allows us to support free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities for Newark youth and young adults. We're kicking ass in Newark, y'all. Like I told y'all, we built a free boxing gym for the community and launched our incubator program, Thrive, this past summer. All our programs are free for youth and young adults for Newarks in New Jersey, in Newark. We're also running our other pitch competition this November. We're teaching our participants how to launch a small business, give them opportunity to earn some cash, and give them opportunity to earn some cash prizes. If our mission speaks to you, we'd love to have you support our efforts. It's time to put your money where your mouth is. Posting and commenting on social media is one thing. Being bold and taking action is another. We could use your help. Donate today at www.ironboundboxing.org. Message me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at mike at weareironbound.com. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mr. Mike Lloyd, and the team from the Gifted Sounds Network, rooting for everybody that's black. Until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. Do it, do it, do it, do it. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't have feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our 